Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. What do you think about when a storm comes into your life? Maybe you're living in that storm now. I don't know. I I hope not, Uh, but perhaps you are. And if you're not, well, praise God for this season of quietness that's going on all around you and hopefully inside of you. And maybe you can reflect on past storms that have been brought into your life. When things are dreadful, how do you wrestle through what's happening to you? Where does your mind go? Now, I suppose that most of us succumb to the temptation to focus more on the storm that is happening to us than the God of the storm. I mean, it makes sense. The storm is more real. The storm is nearer to us than the creator of the storms. I mean, God is out there somewhere, but the storm is right here, right now, happening to me. And because the storm can so dominate our lives, our self-reliant spirit can kick in at that moment uh, where we lean into our ingenuity, where we lean into to that, that safety, protective desire to get out of the storm. And well, in those cases, we, we may miss what God is trying to teach us. But the temptation is, the problem is, the trouble appears more manageable than the God of the universe. And so logic is screaming at us, I have a better shot at fixing the storm than bending God toward my desires. It reminds me of Job 23, where Job said, I would just go up to his seat Uh, But then he continued to reflect about the unmanipulatable God. And so the reasoning can go like this. If I can manage my situation, it will be through my self-reliant efforts. Because if I'm going to be honest here, I am not sure that God will cooperate with what I want. And he may not want what I want the way that I want it when I want it. I recently counseled a lady in a not-so-delightful marriage. That would be a euphemistic way or a nice way of saying I mean, she was in a, a storm. She has been in this marriage for nearly three decades, and that's a long time for extended disappointment and, and so much heartbreak. Her thoughts were predominantly on how she had messed up. She had gone uh, self-reflective. But she was also thinking, too, how her husband needed to change. And so her thinking was really on the ground level. What have I done wrong? How much I regret getting into this marriage? What is he doing wrong? And how hard it is for him to change. And so her thought process, I mean, really, it it was normal for people in bad marriages. I mean, why not hope and pray that your marriage partner will change. I mean, that is a good prayer. Perhaps God would would answer that prayer. It's not a wrong prayer. I mean, if he changes, she will get what she wants and she will be happy. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But here's the thing. What the Lord might want for both the husband and the wife in that marriage, it was missing in her line of reasoning. Now, I wasn't, I wasn't, banging. I wasn't critiquing her for that. 
condemning or judging her for that. I'm just saying from a matter-of-fact way that her reasoning was very uh, sublunear. Uh, her reasoning was very much outside of thinking what God might want for them. Now, it's wise to make sober assessments about how you need to change or how your spouse needs to change. And so I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but the more important thing to think about when there is a storm, the one thing that will steady our minds when the storm is all around us, and that is the Lord who is in charge of the storm. And so while I want to affirm my friend for carefully reviewing the sin patterns and how change needed to happen as she was self-reflecting, very honestly dealing with the log in her eye, and very sincerely dealing with the speck that was in the room, across the room, in the form of her husband, I wanted to appeal to her to think more about her Heavenly Father, the sovereign ruler over all storms, because sometimes we can forget that when the storm is a raging, whatever that storm may be. It was hard for her to consider how God might be in her bad marriage. I mean, think about that. It just seems so antithetical or disjointed. I have a bad marriage, and God can't be in this. Can God be in a storm? I mean, he seemed to be a distant influencer at best. Additionally, she believed that her decision to marry and all the ensuing trouble from that decision was outside God's ability to alter. And now you're starting to hear regret as she's analyzing, analyzing the dating relationship and analyzing why she married and maybe her motives weren't right and maybe she knew she shouldn't marry, that this was not the best decision of her life. And so she was really plummeting down into all of regret now in this long-term 30-year marriage that she's in. And though she did not say it this way, she did imply that she had made her bed and now she must sleep in it. And God was a distant bystander. And it was all her fault. She reasoned this way. Because it was my fault, things will not change unless I figure it out and make the appropriate changes. It was self-reliance that got me into this mess, and it will be self-reliance that will get me out of this mess. Do you see the faulty logic there? I suggested that she reprioritize who is really in charge of her mess, and it is not her. She may have made mistakes. She was a, a secondary actor in this narrative. But ultimately, God is the author. God is in control. His grace always overrules our messes. He's not just in our messes. God is super attentive to them. He cares too much for us not to be in our messes, no matter how harsh our messes may be, or who appears to be the cause of our messes. Do you really understand the depth of God's love for you? I mean, really, really, do you understand the depth of God's love for you? Do you believe God may bring, think about this, he may bring unremitting pain into your life because he loves you so much? Let me remind you of the gospel. If you have trouble 
understanding this perspective. Carefully think through. I want to share scripture with you, and I want you to carefully think through this scripture. You could say the things that I'm about to share with you. You could you could say that they happen because of the evil of of men, and you would be correct that evil men did these things. Like how my friends see her situation, this wife. Uh, her life went bad because of the badness of her husband. Okay, well, she's, she's correct that her husband did bad things. Here's the passage of Scripture. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hell, King of the Jews. And they spit on him, and they took the reed, and they struck him on the head. And, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and they put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. That's Matthew 27. Now, whether it was her sinful choices this wife, or whether it was the husband's disobedience, her life has gone wrong in many ways because of multiple influences. But there is another way to think about what is happening. And I want to use the gospel story that I just read to you as an illustration. God was orchestrating those gospel events. As the gospel of Matthew reveals for His glory, and for our benefit. We must juxtapose and interact with man's free moral will to mess things up, and God's sovereignty as He superintends over our messes. As I read that passage, it seems like you could say, well, evil men were doing these things, and well, that is true. Uh, you could say that this lady made a bad decision in getting married, and she participated in the destruction of the marriage. And you could say her husband has done the same, and that is true. Both are valid and practical in our lives. Somehow, there's mystery here. Somehow, man's free choices work within God's total control of everything. Now, you have to ask the question, which one has more power? Which one has more management? Which one is in more control? What I do or who God is and what He does. If we do not interact with these two truths simultaneously, we could quickly become an emotional shipwreck, especially when trouble comes into our lives. See, here's another passage that describes the story in Matthew that I read to you about those evil men and all those things that they did. It's Isaiah 53.10. In a very brief and amazing way, Isaiah said, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him to grief. God is in your mess, just like he was in the crucifixion of his son, because you are just that important to him. You're so important that he would orchestrate the crushing of his son to save you. The Father loves you that much. He not only brought a storm into his son's life, but he will also bring storms into our lives too. We do not serve a sloppy or haphazard God. 
He's an active God who gets into the details of our lives, even the sad details. He is up in our business in ways that are beyond our understanding. I mean, think about this simple passage that we love from Matthew 6. Jesus is talking. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Well, here's another passage of Scripture. It's Jonah 1.4. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Our thoughts about our troubles must be about God and what He wants to teach us through those troubles. Now, there are many illustrations of this in the Word of God. Jonah is just one instance. God had called Jonah to go and do a job, but Jonah did not want to go and do that job. And so God hurled a great storm into Jonah's life. He hurled this storm. Why? Because he loved Jonah, and he did not want him to continue living as he had. Now, you know the story. The word picture here about the storm that he cast upon the sea, the the word hurled, it pictures a man, a pig man, throwing a spear at a target. That is the word picture for this word hurled upon the sea. God was hurling a storm at a target, and in this case, the target was Jonah. He did this to get his attention. And so here is the twofold sequence. It's quite simple. God launches a storm into your life. God wants to get your attention. Now, our first thought must not be to run like Jonah did. Now, I'm not bashing Jonah because I totally understand what he was doing, why he was doing it, because I am a runner too. But Jonah did not discern what the Father had for him and how much the Father loved him. Now, perhaps you could say God sent the storm because Jonah was sinning. Okay, sure. Yeah, he was sinning, and God sent a storm because Jonah was sinning. That would be correct. But you cannot say that God only sends storms in those who are actively disobeying him. He may love someone who is sinning enough to throw a storm at him like he loved Jonah. Yes, correct. That's fine. But we know the storm that he sent into Job's life was not because Job was sinning. We also know that the storm that he sent into Joseph's life was not because Joseph was sinning. And we certainly understand the Savior was not sinning when he went through his storm, and this is where we want to be careful. Attaching all storms to a person's sin can be dangerous, as though you will get a storm only when you sin. That is at the heart of legalism. My performance determines how God will interact with me. If I'm good, God will give me favor. If I'm bad, God will hurl a storm at me. Now, not only is this poor theology, it is awful theology. 
but probably even more heinous is that it makes a sinful judgment about the gospel. It says, our righteousness matters to God and lessens his judgment on Christ. Legalism is dangerous ground. We have no righteousness apart from that which Christ gave us. It is his righteousness, not ours. It's an alien righteousness that has been given to us. If God dealt with us based on our righteousness, we would get more than a storm. We would get hell. It could be that God has brought a storm into your life for other purposes. And so rather than determining whether you deserve the storm based on your performance, it would be better to ascertain what God wants to teach you through the storm. And so we have to work with objective data, not subjective or speculative thoughts centered on our decision, our wishes, our fears. And so here are a few sure things that you know about God. And these things will, will serve you, especially when things are going bad. For example, God is good. Number two, he loves you immeasurably. Number three, his storms are for his glory. Number four, his storms are for your good. Now you can bank on those four things. And rather than getting angry at the storm or getting angry at the person that you think is perpetuating the storm in your life, it would be better to huddle up with God and discern why is he loving you this way. If you do not keep your eye focused on God, the God of the storm, your heart will go to some dangerous places. And if you're like me, you have been in those dark spots before, and I have. If you think more about the horizontal realities in your life, the people who may be causing your suffering, your mind will trick you into sinful thinking. Now, in Jonah's case, God hurled the storm at him because he needed to save Jonah from himself. Rest assured, that if God has you in a storm, he somehow seeks to do redemptive work in your life. That is a truth you can bank on. Creating a storm, I mean, that is one reason parents discipline children, right? I mean, the parent hopes the momentary suffering, the discipline, that it will warn and it will deter the child from continued self-destructive behavior. It is a pre plan, calculated storm sent into the child's life. I mean, don't you agree? Parents discipline out of love. Only a loving God would send a storm, and parents imitate that when they discipline their children. It is painful for a season, of course, but the reward can be eternal. This is how the Hebrew writer thought about this in Hebrews 12. He says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so a discerning child will understand the storm is for their immediate and long-term benefit. 
If they are less about getting out of trouble and more about embracing the redemptive value of the storm, they will learn, they will, they will uh, mature uh, because of it. God brought pain into Jonah's life because Jonah was running from God. And to some degree, we all are running from God or have run from God. I mean, think deeply, reflectively about your storm. How, how does God want you to change? I mean, assuming that you're in a storm right now, I'm asking you a redemptive question. Even through the storm, Jonah did not understand how God could bestow his grace on undeserving people, the Ninevites. He did not want to carry God's redeeming message to the people of Nineveh. I mean, that was the deeper thing that was going on in Jonah's heart. And so God was wanting to get that out of him. And so as we think about the storms that are happening in our lives without going on some morbid sin hunt, we do want to think, what are the greater purposes that God is doing here? Because we know that he's good. We know that he loves me. He loves me immeasurably. And so what is God wanting to teach me through this storm? So God sent a storm into Jonah's life to rescue him from his sinful thinking. Now, sadly, Jonah did not get the whole redemptive meaning of his trouble, but God would not let go of his friend. And that's, that's either good news or, or bad, depending on your perspective. If you're reading it from the book of Jonah, that sounds like really good news, and it really teaches in Sunday school. But if it is happening to you that God will not let go of you, well, guess what? So he sent a big fish so Jonah could cool his jets for a few days. And so now there's a second storm. The second storm, by the way, did the trick. Jonah got the message from his loving heavenly father, and he repented. It would have been better if Jonah had sought the Lord when the storm first came, but, well, he's, he's like me. He did not. And so the first question that we must ask when, when trouble comes is, what does God want to do for me? The personal redemptive purpose of all storms is the most critical question that we can ask when trouble comes because God is always in our trouble for good reasons. And so it's more important to discern God before getting involved in the trouble that is happening. And this is what was going on in this couple's life. They were so fixated and focused horizontally to where she was going into this morbid regret for even marrying this man. And of course, she was focused on all his agitations as well, missing the author of the storm. Let me give you a few examples of wrong beliefs about God amidst a storm. Now, maybe these don't apply to you. These are just theoretical, uh, but I would encourage you to think about uh, your own life, to think practically of wrong beliefs when you're in a storm, and maybe this will uh, get things going for you. If you believe God is not in your trouble, you will probably be discouraged or depressed. Trouble without God is a dangerous place to be. God is with you even in your deepest trials, number two. If you believe God punishes you, you will head down the black hole of guilt and fear. God's goodness to you should be your first and most sustaining thought when the storm comes. Number three, 
If you believe God is distant, you will seek to work out your problems without God. God was with Joseph. He was with Job. He was with Jonah. He was with Jesus, and he is with you too. Number four, if you believe God is doing this because of your sin, you will have a distorted view of God. He is doing this because He loves you. And so we don't want to mock the gospel. The Father punished His Son for our sin. He's not punishing us, and He's not punishing you. And so we don't want a distorted view of God. God sends storms into our lives to intercept self-destructive behavior. And so the key is whether or not we will let go of what God wants to change in us. It doesn't mean that that God will stop pursuing us if we do not want to change. When the storm came, Jonah refused to change. And so God sent a big fish, which gave Jonah more time to think about his situation. Now, a large fish did the trick for Jonah. When we run from God, expect him to chase us down. He will not let us go without stormy intervention. His love for us is too great for that. His grace for us is too immeasurable for that. He will pursue us even if he has to send a fish to get our attention. A person in a storm is not entirely oblivious to what God could be up to with him. And you've had those moments where you're in your storm and you have this awareness that God is, God is there somehow. I mean, we know that as Christians. The Spirit of God is animated inside of us. How could we not? Now, you may not know everything that God is up to. Well, of course you don't. But you will know part of what he is trying to teach you. So my friend in the marriage, they began to discern a few things of how God was working in her life through the storm. For example, she had unresolved guilt predating the marriage, regret, as I've already uh, mentioned. There was bitterness in her life. There was also anger issues toward her husband, which you might expect. She also had a wrong view of God pertaining to why the storm was happening, a distorted theology, specifically the, uh, theology proper about God. She did not see God in her storm, thinking her poor marriage was because of her regrettable decision to marry Biff. And so her, her free moral agency was, was transcending God's sovereignty. Poor theology created a relational distance between her and God. And so my appeal to her was to spend more time with God thinking through these things. I mean, the last thing she needed to be thinking is that God is not in her mess, not in her trouble. He is right in the center of it all, wanting to show himself bigger than her problems. Having a God-centered view of trouble does not mean that the problems will change, that the problems will go away. Her marriage may never change, but her perspective and her experience with God, it must change. I mean, who knows? As God begins to change her heart toward Him, she may be able to present a clearer representation of the Savior to her husband. Once she learns to die to herself, she may have a more redemptive effect on others, including her husband. Jonah became a minister of reconciliation when he stopped running from God. And isn't that the case with us?
If you want to read what I just shared with you, go to lifeovercoffee.com. The title of it is, When God Hurls a Storm at You. Now, I want to wrap up by giving you a little call to action here. Every storm that God has brought into my life has resulted in personal transformation, sometimes big, sometimes small, sometimes almost imperceptible, but every storm leads to some kind of transformation. Once I stopped running from how my heart needed to change, my usefulness in God and His work in my life would increase. Now, how about, I mean, that's the same with you. And so are you in a storm? A couple of questions to think about. If you are, or if you're helping someone in a storm, which I'd imagine you are, what is God teaching you about yourself? Or if you're discipling someone, you want to ferret that out. What is God teaching them about themselves? And then, of course, the follow-up is obvious. What do you need to change? And so rather than getting angry or fearful at the storm, lean into God. Discern what He is teaching you. Experience His love while in your storm. If you do this, you will learn what Joseph learned, what Job, Jonah, what Jesus learned, the redemptive value of storms. I mean, who knows? Maybe your storm will go away. Maybe not. But one thing is sure. God will change how you relate to Him He will give you strength because of the storm that he hurls at you. Paul said it this way, and this is a profound passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, This is his storm, uh, and his storm did not go away, as you hear here from this text. But he said, God said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul said then, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul continued, For the sake of Christ then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When the storm hurler hurls the big one, stop. Think deeply about what he is doing. He desires to remove all of you from yourself so your satiation and reliance are on him completely. You will know when you have arrived. You will be a grateful person rather than an angry or complaining or grumbling one. One of the characteristics of broken people whom God strengthens is their gratitude. Paul did not get a change of circumstance per his request. It was very clear in that text. He got God instead, which empowered him to function despite his troubles. Through his weakness, God's strength was made perfect. Again, if you want to read this, go to lifeovercoffee.com. When God hurls a storm at you. Thanks so much. This is Rick Thomas, by the way, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.